Short stories from the worlds of speculative fiction. This is Michael Hansen with a story this time from The Best of Amazing, selected by Joseph Ross. It's a story that originally appeared in Amazing Magazine in 1928. It's written by Jack Williamson, and the title is The Metal Man. The Metal Man stands in the dark, dusty corner of the Tyburn College Museum. Just who is responsible for the figure being moved there or why it was done, I do not know. To the casual eye, it looks to be merely an ordinary life-size statue. The visitor who gives it a closer view marvels at the minute perfection of the detail of hair and skin, at the silent tragedy in the set, determined expression and poise, and at the remarkable greenish cast of the metal of which it is composed, but most of all at the peculiar mark upon the chest. It's a six-sided blot of a deep crimson hue with the surface oddly granular and strange wavering lines radiating from it, lines of a lighter shade of red. Of course, it is generally known that the metal man was once Professor Thomas Kelvin of the geology department. There are current many garbled and inaccurate accounts of the weird disaster that befell him. I believe I am the only one to whom he entrusted his story, and it is to put these fantastic tales at rest that I have decided to publish the narrative that Professor Kelvin sent me. For some years he had been spending his summer vacations along the Pacific coast of Mexico, prospecting for radium. It was three months since he had returned from his last expedition. Evidently, he had been successful beyond his wildest dreams. He did not come to Tyburn, but we heard stories of his selling millions of dollars' worth of salts of radium and giving as much more to institutions employing radium treatment. And it was said that he was sick of a strange disorder that defied the world's best specialists and that he was pouring out his millions in the establishment of scholarships and endowments as if he expected to die soon. One cold, stormy day, when the sea was running high on the unprotected coast which the cottage overlooks, I saw a sail out to the north. It rapidly drew nearer until I could tell that it was a small sailing schooner with auxiliary power. When the boat touched, four men sprang out and rushed it up higher on the sand. As a fifth tall man arose in the stern, the four picked up a great chest and started up in my direction. The fifth person followed leisurely. 
Silently and without invitation, the men brought the chest up the beach into my yard and set it down in front of the door. The fifth man, a hard-faced Yankee skipper, walked up to me and said, I'm Captain McAndrews. I was glad to meet the captain, but wondered if there was some mistake. He said, No, not at all. The man in that chest was transferred to my ship from the liner Plutonia three days ago. He has paid me for my services, and I believe his instructions have been carried out. Good day, sir. He turned on his heel and started away. A man in the chest. Well, he walked on unheeding, and the seamen followed. I stood and watched them walk down to the boat and row back to the schooner. I gazed at its sails until they were lost against the dull blue of the clouds. Frankly, I feared to open the chest. At last I nerved myself to do it. It was unlocked. I threw back the lid, and with a shock of uncontrollable horror that left me half sick for hours, I saw in it stark naked with a strange crimson mark standing lividly out from the pale green of the breast, the metal man just as you may see him in the museum. Of course, I knew at once that it was Calvin. For a long time I bent trembling and staring at him. Then I saw an old canteen, purple-stained, lying by the head of the figure, and under it a sheaf of manuscript. I got the ladder out, walked with shaken steps to the easy chair in the house, and read this story. Dear Russell, you are my best, my only intimate friend. I've arranged to have my body and the story brought to you. I just drank the last of the wonderful purple liquid that has kept me alive since I came back, and I have scant time to finish this necessarily brief account of my adventure. But my affairs are in order, and I die in peace. I had myself transferred to the schooner today in order to reach you as soon as could be and to avoid possible complications. I trust Captain McAndrews. When I left France, I hoped to see you before the end, but fate ruled otherwise. You know that the goal of my expedition was the headwaters of El Rio de la Sangre, the River of Blood. It's a small stream whose strangely red waters flow into the Pacific. On my trip last year, I had discovered that its waters were powerfully radioactive. Water has the power of absorbing radium emanations and emitting them in turn, and I hope to find radium-bearing minerals in the bed of the upper river. Twenty-five miles above the mouth, the river emerges from the Cordilleras. There are a few miles of rapids, and back of them, the river plunges down a magnificent waterfall. No exploring party had ever been back of the falls. I had hired an Indian guide and made a mule-back journey to their foot. At once, I saw the futility of attempting to climb the precipitous escarpment. But the water there was even more powerfully radioactive than at the mouth. There was nothing to do but return. This summer, I bought a small monoplane. Though it was comparatively slow in speed and able to spend only six hours aloft, its light weight and the small area needed for landing made it the only machine suitable for use in so rough a country. The steamer left me again on the dock of the little town of Vaca Morena with my stack of crates and gasoline tins. I secured the use of an abandoned shed for a hangar. I set about assembling the plane, and in a fortnight I had completed the task. Then, one morning, I started the engine and made a trial flight. 
It flew smoothly, and in the afternoon I refilled the tanks and set off for the Rio de la Sangre. The stream looked like a red snake crawling out to sea. There was something serpentine in its aspect. Flying high, I followed it above the falls and into a region of towering mountain peaks. The river disappeared beneath the mountain. For a moment I thought of landing, and then it occurred to me that it flowed subterraneously for only a few miles and would reappear farther inland. I soared over the cliffs and came over the crater. A great pool of green fire it was, fully ten miles across to the black ramparts on the farther side. The surface of the green was so smooth that at first I thought it was a lake, and then I knew that it must be a pool of heavy gas. In the glory of the evening sun, the snow-capped summits about where brilliant argent crowns dyed with crimson tinged with purple and gold, tinted with strange and incredibly beautiful hues. Amid this wild scenery, nature had placed her greatest treasure. I knew that in the crater I would find the radium I sought. I circled about the place, wrapped in wonder. As the sun sank lower, a light silver mist gathered on the peaks, half veiling their wonders, and flowed toward the crater. It seemed drawn with a strange attraction, and then the center of the green lake rose in a shining peak. It flowed up into a great hill of emerald fire. Something was rising in the green, carrying it up. Then the vapor flowed back, revealing a strange object, still veiled faintly by the green and silver clouds. It was a gigantic sphere of deep red, marked with four huge oval spots of dull black. Its surface was smooth, metallic, and thickly studded with great spikes that seemed of yellow fire. It was a machine, inconceivably great in size. It spun slowly as it rose on a vertical axis, moving with a deliberate, purposeful motion. It came up to my own level, paused, and seemed to spin faster. And the silver mist was drawn to the yellow points, condensing, curdling, until the whole globe was a ball of lambent argent. For a moment it hung, unbelievably glorious in the light of the setting sun. And then it sank ever faster until it dropped like a plummet into the sea of green. And with its fall, a sinister darkness descended upon the desolate wilderness of the peaks, and I was seized by a fear that had been deadened by amazement and realized that I had scant time to reach Vaca Marina before complete darkness fell. Immediately, I put the plane about in the direction of the town. According to my recollections, I had at the time no very definite idea of what it was I had seen, or whether the weird exhibition had been caused by human or natural agencies. I remember thinking that in such enormous quantities, as undoubtedly the crater contained it, radium might possess qualities unnoticed in small amounts, or again that there might be present radioactive minerals at present unknown. It occurred to me also that perhaps some other scientists had already discovered the deposits and that what I had witnessed had been the trial of an airship in which radium was utilized as a propellant. And then I noticed that a pale, bluish luminosity was gathering about the cowl of the cockpit, and at a moment I saw that the whole machine, and even my own person, was covered with it. It was somewhat like St. Elmo's fire, except that it covered all surfaces indiscriminately instead of being restricted to sharp points. All at once I connected the phenomenon with the thing I had seen. I felt no physical discomfort, 
and the motor continued to run. But as the blue radiance continued to increase, I observed that my body felt heavier and that the machine was being drawn downward. My mind was flooded with wonder and terror. I fought to retain sufficient self-possession to fly the ship. My arms were soon so heavy that I could hold them upon the controls only with difficulty, and I felt a slight dizziness due, no doubt, to the blood being drawn from my head. When I recovered, I was already almost upon the green. Somehow my gravitation had been increased, and I was being drawn into the pit. It was possible to keep the plane under control only by diving and keeping at a high speed. I plunged into the green pool. The gas was not suffocating, as I had anticipated. In fact, I noticed no change in the atmosphere, save that my vision was limited to a few yards around. The wings of the plane were still distinctly discernible. And suddenly, a smooth, sandy plane was murkily revealed below, and I was able to level the ship off enough for a safe landing. As I came to a stop, I saw that the sand was slightly luminous, as the green mist seemed to be, and red. For a time, I was confined to the ship by my own weight, but I noticed that the blue was slowly dissipating, and with it, its effect. As soon as I was able, I clambered over the side of the cockpit, carrying my canteen and automatic, which were themselves immensely heavy. I was unable to stand erect, but crawled off over the coarse, shining red sand, stopping at frequent intervals to lie flat and rest. I was in deathly fear of the force that had brought me down. I was sure it had been directed by intelligence. The floor was so smooth and level that I supposed it to be the bottom of an ancient lake. Sometimes I looked fearfully back, and when I was a hundred yards away, I saw a score of lights floating through the green toward the airplane. In the luminous murk, each bright point was surrounded by a disk of paler blue. I didn't move, but lay and watched them float to the plane and wheel about it with a slow, heavy motion. Closer and lower they came until they reached the ground about it. The mist was so thick as to obscure the details of the scene. When I went to resume my flight, I found my excess of gravity almost entirely gone though I went on hands and knees for another hundred yards to escape possible observation. When I got to my feet, the plane was lost to view. I walked on for perhaps a quarter of a mile and suddenly realized that my sense of direction was altogether gone. I was completely lost in a strange world inhabited by beings whose nature and disposition I could not even guess. And then I realized that it was the height of folly to walk about when any step might precipitate me into a danger of which I could know nothing. I had a peculiar, unpleasant feeling of helpless fear. The luminous red sand and the shining green of the air lay about in all directions, unbroken by a single solid object. There was no life, no sound, no motion. The air hung heavy and stagnant. The flat sand was like the surface of a dead and desolate sea. I felt the panic of utter isolation from humanity. The mist seemed to come closer. The strange evil in it seemed to grow more alert. Suddenly a darting light passed meteor-like through the green above, and in my alarm I ran a few blundering steps. My foot struck a light object that rang like metal. It was a metal bird 
An eagle formed of metal, with the wings outspread, the talons gripping, the fierce beak set open. The color was white, tinged with green. It weighed no more than the living bird. At first, I thought it was a cast model, and then I saw that each feather was complete and flexible. Somehow, a real eagle had been turned to metal. It seemed incredible, yet here was the concrete proof. I wondered if the radium deposits, which I had already used to explain so much, might account for this too. I was struck with fright for my own safety. Might I be changed to metal? I looked to see if there were other metal things about, and I found them in abundance. I made a fearful examination of myself, and to my unutterable horror, I perceived that the tips of my fingernails and the fine hairs upon my hands were already changed to light green metal. The shock unnerved me completely. You cannot conceive my horror. I screamed aloud in agony of soul, careless of the terrible foes that the sound might attract. I ran off wildly. I was blind, unreasoning. I felt no fatigue as I ran, only stark terror. Bright, swift-moving lights passed above in the green, but I heeded them not. Suddenly, I came upon the great sphere that I had seen above. It rested motionless in a cradle of black metal. The yellow fire was gone from the spikes, but the red surface shone with metallic luster. Lights floated about it. They made little bright spots in the green, like lanterns swinging in a fog. I turned and ran again, desperately. I took no note of direction nor of the passage of time. Then I came upon a bank of violet vegetation. Waste deep it was, grass-like, with thick, narrow leaves dotted with clusters of small pink blooms and little purple berries. And a score of yards beyond, I saw a sluggish red stream, a Rio de la Sangre. Here was cover at last. I threw myself down in the violet growth and lay sobbing with fatigue and terror. For a long time, I was unable to stir or think. When I looked again at my fingernails... The tips of metal had doubled in width. I tried to control my agitation and to think. Possibly the lights, whatever they were, would sleep by day. If I could find the plane or scale the walls, I might escape the fearful action of the radioactive minerals before it was too late. I realized that I was hungry. I plucked off a few of the purple berries and tasted them. They had a salty, metallic taste, and I thought they would be valueless for food. But in pulling them, I had inadvertently squeezed the juice from one upon my fingers. And when I wiped it off, I saw to my amazement and my inexpressible joy that the rim of metal was gone from the fingernails it had touched. I had discovered a means of safety. I supposed... The plants were able to exist there only because they had been so developed and had produced compounds counteracting the metal-forming emanations. Probably their evolution began when the action was far weaker than now, and only those able to withstand the more intense radiations had survived. I lost no time in eating a cluster of the berries, and then I poured the water from my canteen and filled it with their juice. I have analyzed the fluid... It corresponds in some ways with the standard formulas for the neutralization of radium burns, and doubtless it saved me from the terrible burns caused by the action of ordinary radium. 
I'd walked about two and a half miles along by the violet plants when I came to an abrupt cliff. I walked off north around the rim. I had no very definite plan, except to try to find a way out over the cliffs. I went on until it must have been noon, though my watch had stopped. Occasionally I passed metal trees that had fallen from above, and once the metallic body of a bear that had slipped off a path above some time in ages past. And there were metal birds without number. They must have been accumulating through geological ages. All along up to this, the cliff had risen perpendicularly to the limit of my vision. But now I saw a wide ledge with a sloping wall beyond it dimly visible above. In an hour, I came upon it. A slender cylinder of black metal that towered a hundred feet into the greenish mist and carried at the top a great mushroom-shaped orange flame. It was a strange thing. The fire was as big as a balloon, bright and steady. It looked much like a great jet of combustible gas burning as it streamed from the cylinder. I stood petrified in amazement, wondering vaguely at the what and why of the thing. And then I saw more of them back of it, dimly scores of them, a whole forest of flames. I crouched back against the cliff while I considered. Here, I supposed, was the city of the lights. They were sleeping now, but still I had not the courage to enter. According to my calculations, I had gone about fifteen miles, then I must be, I thought, almost diametrically opposite the place where the crimson river flowed under the wall, with half of the rim unexplored. If I wished to continue my journey, I must go around the city, if I may call it that. So I left the wall. Soon it was lost to view. I tried to keep in view of the orange flames, but abruptly they were gone in the mist. I walked more to the left, but I came upon nothing but the wastes of red sand with a green murk above. On and on I wandered. Then the sand and the air grew slowly brighter, and I knew that night had fallen. The lights were soon passing to and fro. I had seen lights the night before, but they traveled high and fast. These, on the other hand, sailed low, and I felt that they were searching. I knew that they were hunting for me. I lay down in a little hollow in the sand. Vague, mist-veiled points of light came near and passed. And then one stopped directly overhead. It descended, and the circle of radiance grew about it. I knew that it was useless to run, and I could not have done so for my terror. Down and down it came. And then I saw its form. The thing was of a glittering, blazing crystal. A great six-sided upright prism of red. A dozen feet in length it was, with a six-pointed structure like a snowflake about the center, deep blue, with pointed blue flanges running from the points of the star to angles of the prism. Soft, scarlet fire flowed from the points, and on each face of the prism, above and below the star, was a purple cone that must have been an eye. Strange, pulsating lights flickered in the crystal, it was alive with light. It fell straight toward me. It was a terribly, utterly alien form of life. It was not human, not animal, not even life as we know it at all. 
And yet, it had intelligence. But it was strange and foreign and devoid of feeling. It dropped until the gleaming lower point of the prism was not a yard above me. Then the scarlet fire reached out caressingly, flowed over my body. My weight grew less. I was lifted, held against the point. You may see its mark upon my chest. The thing floated into the air, carrying me. Soon others were drifting about. I was overcome with nausea. The scene grew black, and I knew no more. I awoke floating free in a brilliant orange light. I touched no solid object. I writhed, kicked about, at nothingness. I could not move or turn over because I could get a hold on nothing. My memory of the last two days seemed a nightmare. I had the sensation that a great space of time had passed. There was a curious stiffness in my side. I examined it and found a red scar. I believe those crystal things had cut into me, and I found, with a horror you cannot understand, the mark upon my chest. Presently, it dawned upon me that I was floating, devoid of gravity, and free as an object in space, in the orange flame at the top of one of the black cylinders. The crystals knew the secret of gravity. It was vital to them. And peering about, I discerned with infinite repulsion a great flashing body a few yards away. But its inner lights were dead, so I knew that it was day and that the strange beings were sleeping. If I was ever to escape, this was the opportunity. I kicked, clawed desperately at the air, all in vain. I did not move an inch. If they had chained me, I could not have been more secure. I drew my automatic, resolved on a desperate measure. They would not find me again, alive. And as I had it in my hand, an idea came into my mind. I pointed the gun to the side and fired six rapid shots. And the recoil of each explosion sent me drifting faster, rocket-wise, toward the edge. I shot out into the green... Had my gravity been suddenly restored, I might have been killed by the fall. But I descended slowly and felt a curious lightness for several minutes. And to my surprise, when I struck the ground, the airplane was right before me. They had drawn it up by the base of the tower. It seemed to be intact. I started the engine with nervous haste and sprang into the cockpit. As I started, another black tower loomed up abruptly before me, but I veered around it and took off in safety. Soon I'd landed again at Vaca Marina. I had had enough of radium hunting. On the beach where I landed, I sold the plane to a rancher at his own price and told him to reserve a place for me on the next steamer, due in three days. Then I went to the town single inn, ate, and went to bed. At noon, the next day, when I got up, I found that my shoes and the pockets of my clothes contained a good bit of the red sand from the crater that had been collected as I crawled about in flight from the crystal lights. I saved some of it for curiosity alone. But when I analyzed it, I found it a radium compound so rich that the little handful was worth millions of dollars. 
But the fortune was of little value, for despite frequent doses of the fluid from my canteen and the best medical aid, I have suffered continually. And now that my canteen is empty, I am doomed. Your friend, Thomas Kelvin. Thus the manuscript ends. If you doubt the truth of this letter, you may see the metal man in the Tyburn Museum. That story is titled The Metal Man, written by Jack Williamson. It first appeared in Amazing Magazine during 1928. It reappears in a collection edited by Joseph Ross called The Best of Amazing. This is Michael Hansen speaking. Technical production for Mindwebs by Leslie Hilsenhoff. Mindwebs originates at WHA Radio in Madison, a service of University of Wisconsin Extension. Thank you.